Welcome to MedPeds in a Podcast. This is April Edwards, the PGY5 Chief at UNC Chapel Hill. This is the weekly MedPeds podcast to review a couple journal articles from the literature and the article from our clinic corner. This is going into the week of August 1st. So to start off for this week, we will start with an article from JAMA Pediatrics uh, about our NICU babies. And so this article is entitled Health, Wealth, Social Integration, and Sexuality of ELBWs Born to Adults in the Fourth Decade of Life. So this study was a longitudinal cohort that was done in Canada of the ELBWs, a.k.a. the extremely low birth weight infants. So lots of times we see these kids in the NICU. They are the kids who weigh less than... 1,000 grams, so less than one kilo. In this study, they were between 500 grams and one kilo. And so they were basically studying these kids and comparing them to non-premature, non-low birth weight children in their 40s. Yeah, so that was kind of fun to see 40 years from now, what do these NICU graduates look like and are there disabilities that we should be more aware of in this group? So as mentioned, it was a longitudinal cohort. They took 100 ELBW survivors, and then they had about 90 age match controls that were matched for socioeconomic status and some other variables uh, who were neither preterm or low weight. And they basically looked at a couple different outcomes of these uh, now adults in their 40s. So they checked out demographic information, relationship data, subjective well-being, risk-taking behaviors, general health markers. And what they found out is that some things are the same. They actually, in the introduction, talk about previous work that had been done that suggested that despite being born preterm and at an extremely low birth weight, these kids often had outcomes similar to their uh, healthy weight controls. Um, And so there were some metrics that were the same. So the highest education level attained uh, and the general family and partner relationship status uh, were about the same. Um, And the differences came up with, so the ELBWs were more likely to be under or unemployed. um, And going along with that, had lower income and needed more social assistance. Uh, They tended to be a bit more single, to not have had sex in their life or have had kids. They did have more chronic health issues and lower self-esteem. But interestingly, they had less drug use and abuse. Um, So this article was interesting to me, perhaps for a different reason than the authors intended. But I think often we are so focused on the myriad complications that happen in the NICU in these ELBW babies. They are the ones who are getting neck and uh, being on ventilators and having to go to oscillators in the jet um, early, and we are used to the complications early in life. But what this article suggests is that if you get out of that neonatal period and you are someone who can survive to 40 years of age, you must be the kind who is surviving because you have some, some other things going for you. So your life might not be that different from those of uh, the controls if you get that far. So um, a, a bit of hopeful news in my mind. Uh, the 
uh, eternal pessimist in me uh, learned some things from that article. So then next, turning to the medicine side, uh, checking out an article for The Lancet. Um, so The Lancet actually did an issue that was focused on physical activity, I think, in gearing up for the upcoming Olympics in Rio. Um, so just being hip and keeping up with everyone else. So they had an article uh, entitled, Does Physical Activity Attenuate or Even Eliminate the Detrimental Association of Sitting Time with Mortality? So this study was, I think, very interesting slash depressing for some of us who sit down all day. Um, it was a systematic review. So again, thinking of our strengths of study type, a systematic review holds a lot of weight. And so they basically pooled a bunch of prospective cohorts. So they had 16 studies in total that they included, and they pooled all the data and analyzed them in, at once. So altogether, they had more than a million participants that they followed Various studies followed from somewhere between 2 and 18 years. And the point was to try to figure out if you are someone who sits for long periods during the day, does it increase your overall mortality and some other secondary outcome measures? Um, so what they did is they divided everyone up into quartiles. So they had four groups of how much you sit per day. And the most active group became sort of the control. So if you... Uh, were sitting down for less than four hours a day, and also you were relatively active, which I'll get into in a second. That, that was the control group. But everybody else, um, they split into quartiles. So the highest sitting group were those who were sitting for more than eight hours a day, which, depending on what you're doing, doesn't sound unlike residency at times. Um, and then the other thing they looked at is how active you are. So independent of the sitting, how active are you during the day? And they used um, METs to determine that. So we're used to using METs to determine uh, in our elderly populations, you know, how active they are. But it's the metabolic equivalent of task. Uh, so we talk about MET hours per week. Um, so in general, they're sort of low, moderate, and intense. Um, everything from sleeping all the way up to jogging and running. Uh, and so what they the results that they found is that basically – in the bottom two quartiles, the people who um, sit the most and are pretty inactive, they had a 12 to 59% higher mortality rate uh, compared to the controls, which is a lot. <laughs> um, so people who sit and are inactive are dying. But uh, interesting thing that they also took a look at is all right, so what if you can't help it? What if you have to sit for a long time? Is there an amount of exercise that seems to be protective uh, even if you are sitting in the high, high risk level, so greater than eight hours a day? And they found that if you did 35.5 med hours a week, it was protective. So what does that mean in real life? It's something like if you do uh, moderate intensity physical activities, so something like biking or walking more than, you know, lackadaisically, sort of leisurely, something in that moderate intensity group, uh, for somewhere around an hour a day, that seems to eliminate the increased risk of death that is associated with a high sitting time by itself. Um, so sitting is bad, exercise is good, but we always knew exercise was good. We just didn't know sitting alone independent of some other things would be so bad. But um, I think this will open up um, for future study directions to, to figure out other things going on. So that's just in time for the Olympics.
Then lastly this week, looking to the clinic corner, we had the Peds in Review article about normal pubertal development. Uh, So the article talked about a lot of different things, which I won't try to cover all of, but I think that when you're looking at taking the boards and questions that are clinically relevant, they tend to cluster around, is this normal or not? And is this either precocious or delayed puberty? So just some general rules of thumb. Um, If you have a young lady, um, breast development is the first thing to happen. Menarche is the last thing to happen. And that whole process should take about two years. So if you think about your tanner staging, you go from stage one to stage five, on average, about two years. And the first thing to happen is your breast bud development. And that starts somewhere around 10 years of age. And then it makes sense that then you get hair around 11 and somewhere by 12 um, you get menarche. So that's the typical development. So it's easier for me to think of it in rules of two. So it generally takes two years uh, for everything to happen. And then if you start two years earlier, that's about the point at which you would call it precocious puberty. So for a girl, it it would be um, if you started noticing breast development before you're eight, that might be Uh, a sign of precocious puberty. We are learning that in different populations with uh, different genetic makeup that perhaps some of the the ages we have should actually be earlier. We're seeing girls who hit all their milestones earlier and earlier, but um, I think the party line is still somewhere around age 10 is normal, and if it's uh, before eight, that's early. Um, And then Boys, as we recall, tend to hit puberty on average one to two years later than girls. Um, so for them, you don't call it precocious until they're uh, until you know, nine or before. Um, and I guess um, in general, missing your menstrual cycle for more than 90 days or having it more frequently than every 21 days, that's the abnormal range. So if you're in between three weeks and 90 days, that is plus or minus normal variation, but those outliers would be uh, reasons to think there's a yellow to red flag. Uh, And then also, uh, I think they often ask questions about, is this child's height potential going to be limited? And so if you're trying to evaluate that, um, you're basically trying to decide based on their mid-parental height and what age they are and what you notice on their exam, is their growth and is their puberty going to limit them going forward? So the best way to determine that is to get a bone age to match it with their current age to see if that's going to be affected down the line. Um, but in general, I would say review your tanner staging and uh, there's an orchiometer in clinic for everybody to practice on as well. Um, I think that wraps it up for this week. So uh, that's it. Have a great week. Enjoy the upcoming Olympics. This is MedPeds in a podcast. This is your captain speaking. Have a great week. <laughs>